0: Episode 5, Section 1 Through Limbo. It's summer 1997. Robin Williams is the highest grossing Hollywood star. The Spice Girls, Boys to Men, and Hansen are topping charts. Super Mario 64 and Goldeneye 007 are some of the most popular video games. Mike Tyson bites off part of Evander Holyfield's ear, and Timothy McVeigh is sentenced to death for the Oklahoma City bombing. I'm in a prisoner housing unit inside the Multnomah County Detention Center. At MCDC, prisoner housing units are called PODs. I've pled guilty to armed bank robbery and my sentencing date is in September. It's not certain how much time I'll get. It could be up to a decade. My fiance is working on finding a judge willing to marry us. This will take months. A lot of judges or their clerks refuse to return calls or else tell my fiance that they won't perform the ceremony. Prisoners are not held in high esteem in judges' eyes, unsurprisingly. After a long search, she finds a judge that is willing, and we fill out the paperwork required. We'll have to pay a fee for the deputy escort and transfer to the courthouse for the marriage. I'll be in handcuffs, and other than the minimum required witnesses, no one will be allowed in the judges' chambers. Board deputies, when moving prisoners, will sometimes ask you about your case, and this happens to me a little. I'm not ready for it the first few times and just remain silent. The last few times they try this gambit, I'm ready with a response. Oh, you're a detective now? The investigators must be relieved to know you're inserting yourself into the case. This shuts them up. Clearly they are just bored or fishing to see if the prisoner is off guard. There are phones in jail and I do my best to call my fiance at least a few times a week. I like hearing her voice and she visits once a week which is good. But phones will always be one of the highest stress points between prisoners in jail and prison. There's limited times you have to access phones. Prisoners are stressed, there's a line, and despite normally the rule of one call, then back in line, prisoners will look at the next person in line and calculate whether they can get away with ignoring or stirring them down while they make a second or even third call. It creates drama and tension and makes people angry. I skip the phone line some days and send letters regularly, just relating my day make silly drawings and cartoons, sketch my cell, and ask about my fiancé's life and week. Phone calls from jail and prison are often exploitative, profiteering rackets. In Kentucky today, a 15-minute phone call from prison costs $5.75. Prisoners and their families are being exploited by rapacious phone service providers. President Biden just signed into law the Martha Wright Reed just and reasonable communications act of 2022 regulating the costs of calls from prisoners to their families the law is named for martha wright Reed, a retired nurse who began fighting for prison reform after finding the high cost of staying in touch with her incarcerated grandson the act allows the fcc to regulate the cost of in-state telephone and video calls In 1997, jail and prison had its own culture and its own slang. That's likely still the case today. I worked to learn the language and understand the culture while I was inside, going so far as to write out a prison slang dictionary while I was in there. I'll post that document in my Patreon. A lot of the language of incarceration is focused on violence, respect, sex, drugs, criminal acts, and prison bureaucracy. The language of incarceration also lays bare aspects of personality people-watching is a big part of prison and jail time where you may spend years in close proximity to others. One prison phrase I learned was talking out your neck, which means saying something that you want to believe or want the listener to believe, but that's unlikely to be true. Another phrase, selling wolf tickets, describes when an incarcerated person starts loud talking or creating a scene to attract attention so as to prevent the conflict from escalating For example, attracting the attention of the guards or a broad cross-section of prisoners so that if the other person gets violent, there's way too many witnesses. A guy I knew in prison would parody this move by saying to someone he knew well on the yard as a joke, No, I don't want to join your prison gang, in an overly loud voice. These phrases exemplify how prisoners tend to get skilled at reading people and their motives and parsing bullshit. I was transferred to the courthouse on the day my fiancé and I were to be married. A transfer means belly chain and shackles shuffling into the jail van and a short hop over to the courthouse. I moved into holding cells under the courthouse until the time comes, a few hours later. The travel time itself was a few minutes compared with a couple hours of prep time, the jail making sure they actually have all their ducks in a row and prisoners ready for transport. A pair of deputies cuff me, and then I'm led up to a judge's chambers. There's my bride, her father and mother and stepmother, I'm uncuffed and allowed to hold her hands while a judge conducts a brief ceremony. One brief kiss, and then back in the cuffs and back into courthouse cells downstairs. Belly chain and shackles, and back to MCDC, where I get strip-searched and returned to my pod after some time in a holding cell. Prisoners are strip-searched after transfers and after visits. I get used to the routine, but this will be the early days of what will become over 250 strip searches before I complete my time in lockup. As you take off your clothes, you hand each piece to the guard for inspection. Then you run your hands through your hair. Lift any hair if it's long. Show behind both ears. Open your mouth and show into your tongue. Raise your hands and show your armpits. Lift your dick and balls. Show beneath your scrotum, then let your scrotum fall to show underneath your dick. Turn around and lift each foot one at a time to show the soles of your feet, then bend over and spread your ass cheeks and cough. Jail deputies and correctional officers who want to be control freaks and command each step of the strip search are my favorites. The veteran guards generally just let you walk through the routine and don't spend a lot of time on being, quote, in charge unless you skip steps. You learn a lot about your captors' mindsets while incarcerated. Prisoners spend a lot of time watching the people who guard them as well. My day of sentencing arrives. It's the fall now. Most of the prisoners who were here when I was processed back in the spring are gone, either released, sentenced, or transferred to Inverness, the work farm run by the county. I'm transferred from MCDC to the federal courthouse holding cells. U.S. Marshals escort me into the courtroom. A couple of the Marshals briefly stop and remove evidence from the court and then return, shaking their heads and looking mildly pissed. These law enforcement officers appear more competent in comparison to the cops and deputies I had seen so far. My attorney found out afterward that the Portland police bagging evidence on the crime scene had missed one of the three spare magazines for my 9mm browning that I had used in the bank robbery. A little last-minute surprise in the personal possessions being returned to my spouse right after sentencing. The marshals confiscate the loaded magazine. I'm nervous. My spouse and I had asked friends and family for letters of support, showing that I'm a member of my community and that people want me back after my sentence is complete. We were able to collect a number of supporting statements and letters. Before 1984, federal judges had wide latitudes on sentencing, so wide, in fact, that the feds reformed sentencing with sentencing guidelines, basically a chart where you plug in the offense and various factors and it gives you a sentencing range. To prevent radically different and often racially biased sentence differences, guidelines only gave the judge limited upward or downward departures. Most of the rest was a formula. At sentencing in October of 1997, I made a statement where I apologized for my actions. Showing contrition would improve my sentencing. I was well aware of how my actions had harmed my now spouse and my own future, had impacted my family members. Pointing a loaded gun at a bank teller wasn't something I was proud of at all. I had a better idea of how dumb I had been. I don't really have much contrition or sympathy for Wells Fargo, or the cops particularly, but also wasn't about to make a scene at my sentencing or rant about society and add time on my sentence. The judge gave me 76 months in federal prison, six years and four months. I was also required to pay $5,000 in restitution. In federal prison, if you make it through the year without any new beefs, meaning without any new criminal charges and without any serious infractions of prison rules. You receive 54 days of what's called good time. This meant you could take 54 days out of every year off your sentence. At the end of your prison sentence, usually you are assigned a certain amount of halfway house time, up to six months, which could also be a part of your sentence. Not in addition, kind of like getting out early. So the earliest I would get out, with halfway house and good time, would be about 60 months. Five years. About the middle of 2002. At 25 years old in 1997, that felt like a long time. It could have been longer, but I would be 31 when I got out. It was a relief for me and my spouse to have a sentence handed down. A sentence means you and your family can plan for the future. No more being stuck in a sort of limbo. Purgatory is not knowing, not being able to set goals. I was considering this when I saw the recent news article about two brothers imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay for over 20 years, released to Pakistan last month. For all those years, never given sentences, no due process, just limbo, stasis. 32 prisoners today remain at the infamous Guantanamo Bay, still in limbo, without release dates. Thinking about being stuck like that brings up feelings of dread and empathy. So I was angry and frustrated regarding conditions in the world, and acted out through my armed bank robbery. My actions were the despair of a person who feels powerless, and my actions had no impact on changing the world. Purely as a crime, if successful, I would have netted a few thousand dollars. So for a few thousand dollars, I will spend five years incarcerated. The cost-benefit analysis is terrible. I see people in our world today committing violent acts of despair all too often. Afterwards, the world doesn't get better. The message of this podcast is to contrast that despair, that easy if terrible path, To what I have found demonstrably creates real, transformative change in our world. Mass movements built on unbreakable solidarity between people with credible plans to win desired changes, to stand together in love and righteousness. There's more to share from my prison experience that helps me understand this radical power of solidarity and to understand the conditions of our world. It is my hope that I have something to contribute here that is from a slightly different angle than others with similar messages. I share this with you, but remind myself regularly as well, through the highs and lows, reject despair, learn to organize yourself and others, build that mass movement, good hunting. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I'll walk you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, so there's true crime described in the first person. I'll also be discussing politics from the point of view of a volunteer labor organizer and socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to break free of the zero-sum paralysis of this life, just under the bonds of suffering, how to take action and change this world in your community right now. In a world run on algorithms and dependent on your passive acceptance, there is a path forward and through, but only if we make that path together. Resist entropy and capitalism's alienation and find common cause in a better future for you and for the generations to come. There are things you can do each day to change this world. Welcome to Sunder. Peace. My name is Yasin Bey, and I'm here today to demonstrate the standard operating procedure for force-feeding detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Good morning. Vision. Limbo for me is when I don't have a clear plan or goal. Sitting in jail waiting for sentencing felt like limbo. Once I had a sentence, I began to map out my prison time and plan my future. I began to build towards something. There are people and in institutions today who are trapped in a similar limbo. They see the future as hopeless and as a result see themselves without a role to play in changing conditions. If you internalize this message of powerlessness your condition will be paralysis. Writ large across society, we build a self-fulfilling prophecy. Suicide among the young as well as the middle-aged is higher than ever, and many of the young cite feeling despair that there will be any future worth having, and a feeling powerless to change their conditions. But they come to that conclusion in part because some in the older generations have internalized that message of hopelessness as well, and act as if there is no future for the youth as a foregone conclusion. But they come to that conclusion in part because some in the older generations have internalized that message of hopelessness as well, and act as if there is no future for the youth as a foregone conclusion. By internalizing this despair, many then fail to act themselves. There are undaunted and brave souls and revolutionaries in every generation, and I'm regularly inspired and mentored by my elders committed to the struggle, as well as by the fierce wisdom and insight of some of the younger generation. I know it's a cheesy dad thing, but listening to Greta Thunberg makes me tear up and makes me angry that more people aren't listening. I am sad that so many generations have failed her generation, our son's generation, unless you and I learn how to build an actual mass movement with unbreakable solidarity and fight for a better world now. It's important to have an accurate analysis of conditions and to recognize the gravity of how fucked things are. But if all it does is paralyze you and make you want to give up, then it's time to change your focus. So in my mind, it's not enough to say that you want a better future. It is healthy and important to spend some time on your vision of a better future. Think about what you want in this world for you, for those around you, for the generations that come after you, for the innocent child you once were, for your children, for your nieces and nephews. So in this section, I'm going to outline some of what I mean when I talk about a better future. Understand also that when I speak about that vision of a better world, that those big changes come from small, attainable, medial steps that you can take in your life and your community wherever you are. Everything can be broken down into small steps. That's how we get there together, a piece at a time. The profit motive is dehumanizing and leading us to societal and ecological crisis and collapse. So in my vision of a better world, more than 70% of the national economies are decoupled from the profit motive and are instead nationalized or publicly owned and run. Internet services? Nationalized. Oil? Nationalized. Healthcare? Nationalized. Vehicle production? Remember how many times the car industry was bailed out by the state? Congress nationalized. We're here today because we made how mistakes, about pharmaceuticals? We're Our government paid for the development of life saving vaccines, including the coronavirus vaccine, while having to fight pharmaceutical companies busy gouging poor people for life saving insulin. And in my working class neighborhood, there are signs on the corners for buying diabetic test strips. Pharmaceuticals get nationalized for sure. Electricity, publicly owned utility districts. Higher education, mostly nationalized. Railroads, nationalized. Housing, mostly nationalized. Corporate power in a future worth having is reduced to serve people, not the other way around. How is that attained? By severely circumscribing what corporate power looks like. That means the Walton family and their cronies aren't the board that oversees Walmart. The employees are the board. It means worker ownership wherever possible. As a blue-collar worker, this goal means a lot to me. Limiting the power of the elite also means an end to billionaires and millionaires' ill-gotten wealth. Social security taxes no longer have a cap. Upper tax brackets are in the 80-90% to 90% taxation range, as they were under the Eisenhower administration. And no separate category for capital gains. No special rates for hedge fund managers. Robust inheritance taxes. It means seriously restricting the rentier class, those making passive incomes off of high-frequency trading, off of stocks, off of being landlords. Every stock transaction is taxed. Landlords don't get tax breaks for any mortgages after their primary home. In my vision for a better future, the war economy of the U.S. that has been ongoing since World War II ends. The arms sales and new generation of nuclear weapons and boondoggle military aircraft and that massive carbon footprint is instead converted into green infrastructure spending, rolling up the hundreds of military bases upholding U.S. imperialism across the globe, and cleaning up the toxic and carcinogenic footprint of the military. Ending the war on terror and reducing the military budget means less military jobs with its high suicide rates and long-term mental and physical health issues. It means money that can be invested in ending fossil fuel usage and greenhouse gas emissions. It means money that can be invested in society and people, instead of destruction. All that wealth is redirected in society to make conditions better for everyone instead of eight billionaires buying super yachts, building penis rockets to space, and owning as much wealth as half the world population. That reclaimed wealth is invested in infrastructure, in an end to fossil fuels, in energy conservation, in education, healthcare, public transportation, tree canopy, and livable cities. Real tangible public goods that transform lives of desperation into lives of growth and community. As healthcare is nationalized and made free at the point of use, paid for through taxes, this changes U.S. society massively, saving trillions in costs while also saving over 60,000 lives each year. Decoupling healthcare from the job you hold frees both employers and workers. We are not today in a world of scarcity, instead we are in a world of wasteful overproduction. Britain imports nearly the same amount of dairy that it produces for export instead of providing for the people where they are. This creates a lot of economic activity to serve as profit at the expense of the environment and the actual needs of people. So in my vision for a better future, no more pears grown in Argentina, shipped to Thailand for packaging, and then shipped to Philadelphia to be sold. Overproduction is rampant across the world. In a brave future, we find all examples of overproduction and tax such activity aggressively to make it not profitable at any scale. In a better world, manufacturing is more geared for essentials and is regional to reduce distances of moving materials. All packaging materials are designed to be easily recycled locally. Food waste is reduced but also composted into commercial and public gardens. Gray water systems become standard on housing and connect to gardens. Housing is a human right and need. To address this right and need in our better future, we start by banning investment housing. No more ownership by hedge funds and private equity firms. We massively expand land trust programs and reinvest heavily in public housing. As a nation, we set a 10-year period where all new housing built is only affordable housing. No more high-end McMansions and condos. Empty housing is taxed and the property eminent domained and rehabbed into affordable housing if empty for more than two years. In the U.S., under a new system, we give renters equal tax breaks and social welfare as mortgage holders. Renters can now write off the money they pay in rent each year. Also, in a better world, we provide huge incentives and grants to retrofit existing housing, to bring houses up to building code, and to conserve energy and water by massively improving insulation heat conservation systems, energy-saving appliances. Make retrofitting a job classification for the future through nationalized and unionized jobs paying above a livable wage and providing full training. The promise of technology was to make our lives easier, to save us labor and time. Instead, today, both parents usually work full-time or more, sometimes two or three jobs each, just to live paycheck to paycheck. Almost no work-life balance often mandatory overtime. A livable future means starting points like the four-day 32-hour work week with pay that equals 40 hours. Studies of this schedule overwhelmingly shows workers are happier, have more time for life outside of work, and are more productive. It turns out when you're not being ground down every day, things work better. Additionally, in this future, a lot of unsustainable or problematic jobs go away. Insurance claims jobs for health insurance companies? Gone. Fracking and coal mining jobs? Gone. Health insurance and oil executive jobs? Gone. The number one predictor for prison time is age bracket, early 20s, and a low education level. Free secondary education and career retraining for everyone in the desired vision for a better future means fewer cops, prisoners, and prison guards. It means an educated populace. The jobs grinding people into dust are replaced with jobs that benefit society. There are nurse shortages, teacher shortages, and care economy jobs. There is work to do planting trees, rebuilding natural habitats, building infrastructure like a rail network across the U.S. and high-speed rail, restoring tree canopy, building parks and green spaces, retrofitting existing structures, rebuilding our failing electrical grid, rebuilding our failing bridges, building solar and wind and tidal and geothermal power, building public housing and affordable housing, building schools and hospitals instead of missile factories for our war export industry. In my future, the Green New Deal is implemented and millions of good-paying union jobs are created in a just transition. Currently, the highest-paid positions in most states in the U.S. are the heads of college sports programs. Hedge fund managers are multimillionaires, while teachers take second jobs. CEOs and CFOs take in millions, while nursing home care providers live in poverty. In a brave future, careers like nurses and care providers, teachers and grocery store workers, train operators and bus drivers, firefighters and EMTs, librarians and waste recyclers are prioritized and well rewarded. In the same way the New Deal hired poets, playwrights, musicians and artists, in a better society we fund people willing to tell a story of how diverse peoples came together in solidarity to make a better and livable world. Our media focuses on the solidarity and purpose and public good created by these essential workers together. The fairness doctrine regarding media is reinstated, helping break up monopolies within media and refocus reporting. A Brave Future prioritizes plant and fungus proteins as the new centerpieces of our food culture, and animal proteins are deprioritized. Factory farming is reduced through heavy regulation and taxation. Methane taxes on cattle production, the largest source of greenhouse gases in agriculture, are set and raised over time. As often as possible, public schools have food gardens, orchards, and make a connection between the soil and the food we eat. During the historic 2019 Los Angeles Unified School District Teachers strike, education sector workers and community members fought for and won more green spaces and gardens for students. In a livable and winnable future, numerous community gardens are built and maintained through federal, state, and local funding. Food not lawns becomes a mantra in the suburbs, with gardening appropriate to the local climate and water conservation techniques as a standard. Permaculture gardens, diverse and complementary garden planning that moves us away from monoculture practices, are built and maintained at every college and university. Corporate land and resource holdings are reduced through eminent domain, taxation, and land back programs that move the majority of wild lands into trusts controlled by indigenous tribes. The tribes' roles as land stewards are expanded and the sovereign tribes are paid for leasing rights or for keeping carbon in the ground, in the case of forests. Public transportation is prioritized. High-speed rail networks between major regions expanded and free public transportation into metro areas. The carbon footprint of producing 80 million new vehicles each year rapidly goes down as the need for private vehicle use for commuting to work is reduced. Internet, electricity, libraries, post offices, parks, these become explicitly public goods run by the public and not for extracting profit. Postal banking is established, and the two big-to-fail banks broken up and taxed for their private profits. Voting by mail is set up nationally with Election Day as a national holiday focusing on enfranchisement rights and voting history. Gerrymandering is outlawed federally and redistricting done equitably. Parenting in this desired future is valued and supported. Generous paid family leave for parents when a child is born, free childcare paid for through general taxes, and household work communalized and or heavily subsidized. In the future, I envision, the carbon economy will be replaced by a renewable economy. We stop producing greenhouse gases and plant billions of trees. We keep carbon in the ground, in the soil, in the forests, instead of in the atmosphere. There's a ton of areas to cover in such a world-spanning vision. I've missed whole critical categories in envisioning a more just, equitable, and livable world. But what I've described here is a good start. Just as long as the broader vision can inspire one to take bite-size winnable actions locally to be a part of a larger change. Don't accept the failure of the human species because of lack of vision. We can create a better world. We can stand up the existing power structure and change conditions. Pick an arena of change and commit today.
1: Black boys is who you see on mainstream television. I want the girl, uh, the big house, uh, I'm driving the car. That's little boy stuff. And any man will let you know, any man knows that. Any adult knows that. Now I'm not saying that when you're on TV, you can't aspire for the good things in life, no doubt. But a man, a real man, he gets on the TV and first he looks for his kids. Let me make sure my kids ate today. Are they clean today? Did they learn something today? Uh, are they protected today? Before I can even talk to you, is my kids good? It's a man. Is my woman good? Is she, feel, is she empowered? Does she feel like she can breathe? Is she expressing herself? Does she feel loved? What's my woman doing? Most of the rappers you see on TV, they have no woman in their life. They have little girls who are only interested in little boys, so they play little girl, little boy games. Mm-hmm. I want the guy with the car. <laughs> That's a little girl, a little boy. I can't argue with that. Leave all that over there, okay? There's a little girl, little boy arena that rappers play into, but the majority of us. Men and women, the majority of us.
0: Section three, Life at Home. There's an important area of struggle that can be too easily overlooked, and that is in the home. There's work to do to bring equality, solidarity, and empathy into the place where you and your family live. There's also a balance to uphold if you spend all your time fighting for a better world only to alienate yourself from your loved ones. Then what kind of life are you living? People in partnership often make it possible for their counterparts to perform a work role or meet requirements of a schedule that they could not manage alone. The success of the partner may be built on their relationship providing support. Valuing and sharing the labor required to maintain a family is a part of this. I spent many years preparing dinner and doing grocery shopping, Mrs. Sunder preparing breakfast and lunches, getting our son off to school. I fold laundry, do a fair amount of cleaning of dishes, and some of the housework. Ms. Sunder does a fair amount of dishes and housework, garden planning, and has over the years taken more of the lead with school and bills. Because of our schedules, I was able to support our son for a couple of years of intense therapy, specifically for people on the autism spectrum. He now has his own roles in supporting the household. Having a child changed my life. It meant awkwardly shifting from a more self centered mindset to being a father of a child. While I was serving my time, Ms. Sunder and I planned to have a child or children after I was released. When I took a parenting class in prison, there were still years left of my sentence. I knew that if I became a father, I would want to do some things differently from my parents. The biggest lesson in the class for me to internalize was that children are inherently needy. That is their nature. This insight for me was important as I tended to be ashamed of my neediness as a child and as a human. Becoming a father was grounding, a clarifying recognition of a bigger world outside myself and an emphasis on what has value in this brief life. When our son was born in 2004 with developmental delays related to his premature birth, that need was intensified. When he struggled profoundly in preschool and then kindergarten and went into special education, that role of providing for the needs of another was deepened. Often parenting, our non-neurotypical child kicked our asses I had a lot to unlearn and a lot of growing to do to improve my parenting and to work on my partnering with my spouse. The experience of parenting a non-neurotypical child also tends to push you to drill down to what matters, the essence of this life, what's actually important. Not a special insight or anything, just moments of stark assessment and seeing things laid bare. Friends who are parents of neurotypical kids want the same things ultimately for their children to be happy adults. All the rest is just variations. All the toys and possessions are ephemeral. Seeing our son's struggle in this life and world and seeing his needs too often not met by his underfunded schools crushed my heart. Knowing the rate of extreme violence by the police against autistic and non-neurotypical people further galvanized us as parents to fight for better conditions and treatment. Often that looked like advocating for our child's access to his education, for example, no longer being suspended from kindergarten because he's autistic and poorly placed within the school system, or being warehoused in a class that wasn't set up to help autistic students. It also looked like finding a skilled cognitive behavioral therapist and paying out of pocket for over a decade to help our child develop healthy emotional responses and executive function. Naturally, we fight for our son to have something approximating a decent childhood and to be able to be an adult with agency. Family life and the roles we take up are important to think about, and I feel like I have a lot more to learn. I struggle to meet my ideals. The revolutionary Angela Davis has written on the topic of the exploitative grind of housework and posits a future where much of the household labor may be communalized. I think that's a quite possible path, but mainly I want to emphasize that it is important to internalize the value of housework and homemaking. And that if I fight for dignity and respect in the workplace and in society, then of course I should be giving loving attention to the same at home. Expectations around home and family have changed in my lifetime, where once the expectation was that one person, likely the husband, would support a spouse and children working full-time. Giving the spouse time for childcare and household duties, now the expectation is that both parents will work, often full-time or overtime, just to cover the cost of rent, healthcare, student loans, childcare, and groceries. More time working means less time for living. This has made relationships, parenting, childhood, and family more difficult. Hierarchies and the autocratic structures in society can too often be replicated at home, where family units are dictatorial and cruel. The pressures of capitalism and exploitation can leave a person spent and angry, and that can easily be taken home additionally many of us carry forward learned behaviors from our families that can be destructive or a response to trauma people of many cultures and backgrounds can enter into a family relationship with expectations of gendered roles or assumptions about who does what when this can instead be a discussion and the labor shared when appropriate a lot of folks fall back into what they know which is usually their own childhood experiences of how a household functions and learned parenting roles asking for outside help seeking therapy and counseling can be highly beneficial your family and relationship structure may not involve kids and that's great there are many paths in your struggle for equity at home this may be your work being kind to yourself and your loved ones and your larger community thoughtful and kind friends make a huge difference in your life in the same way thoughtless and cruel friends can massively damage your life be a thoughtful and kind friend maybe people are not your bag so instead there are plants and animals that can use your kindness A number of revolutionary thinkers emphasize the importance of bringing pleasure and joy into the fight for a better world, to bring joy and pleasure into your personal life, into the larger societal struggle, instead of a grim slog. I hope your family and home life can be a part of that joy and hopefully parts of your wider community. Your letter carrier, bus driver, grocery clerk, barista, park worker, neighbor, consider how you can be a force for solidarity in your community. The next episode of Sunder continues to move the narrative forward. In episode 6, I'll discuss starting my prison time, the carceral state, and I'll talk about participating in prison food strikes. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery and politics and taking action in a troubled world. You can help by rating and reviewing the podcast. Send a link to the podcast to a friend. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons you can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. You have the ability to change this world. Good hunting.